From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. As the United States arrives at an inflection point about a federal budget for human needs versus billionaire and corporate greed, we speak to the Reverend William Barber, and the Poor People's Campaign rallies on Capitol Hill. What we are seeing is morally indefensible. It is constitutionally inconsistent, it is economically insane, and it is politically incompetent to think that you can keep stepping on 40% of this nation and at some point we're not gonna rise up and say hell no. And then journalist John Jeter joins me for this month's deep dive into culture and media from the war on truth to the right-wing embrace of political violence to the controversy over Dave Chappelle's The Closer. I asked you, why is it easier for Bruce Jenner to change his gender than it is for Cassius Clay to change his name? All that and much more coming up on the show. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. Progressives in Congress are again holding the line in an effort to secure passage of the Build Back Better Act that invests in climate education, child and elder care, health care, and other benefits for working families in the United States. President Biden delayed his departure to Rome on Thursday and announced a $1.75 trillion package over 10 years, which he suggested would be supported by the two right-wing Democratic senators, Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, who have withheld their support and prevented passage of a larger bill and ripped out key benefits for poor and working families. But despite Biden's announcement of an agreement, neither Manchin nor Sinema announced their support of Biden's framework by late Thursday night. That lack of stated support was not missed by House progressives, who also said they could not support a framework that is not codified in a written bill. Some also still lobbied for vital programs such as paid family leave, free community college, expanded Medicare, and price controls for prescription drugs that Biden removed from this new framework to appease Manchin and Cinema. Progressives also refused to vote for the so-called bipartisan physical infrastructure bill on Thursday, insisting that both bills continue to be joined together and passed together by the House. Representative Pramila Jayapal, head of the Progressive Caucus, spoke Thursday night to reporters, including to The Hill. But our members have been saying for months that these two bills need to be, it need to go together and that we need to have the legislative text. Progressives face pressure, not just from the White House and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, to hurry and vote for the separate physical infrastructure bill, but also face pressure from an October 31st deadline to reauthorize highway funding. So on Thursday, the House passed stopgap funding for highways, and with that deadline pressure removed, perhaps progressives did win the day after all and lived to fight another day for the priorities of working families. Because unlike Cinema or Manchin, some of these lawmakers, such as Representative Cory Bush of Missouri, 
actually do believe they are accountable to a constituency. And many of these everyday Americans from around the country rallied with the Poor People's Campaign in front of the Supreme Court on Wednesday, where I spoke to campaign co-chair the Reverend William Barber about the whittling down of the Build Back Better Act. I'm Esther Averam from uh, Pacifica Radio, and we wanted to ask about the question right now about funding just a couple of programs at a maximum level versus trying to fund all of these things at a really at a very minimal level. What are your thoughts on what they're talking about right now? The whole narrative is just wrong. We shouldn't even be talking about funding at a minimum or maximum. We should be talking about the whole thing. We should literally be talking about six or ten trillion dollars. I mean, we got to get away from that and, and start talking about what are you funding and what are you cutting? I'm not going to talk anymore about 3.5 trillion or in that because that's obsolete and it doesn't get the point. We got the money. Our military spending shows we have the money. The money we gave to corporations even during COVID, 84 percent of the first COVID bill went to corporations. What we should be talking about is what's the hurt, what's the harm, what's the damage that's going on that was going on before COVID and is now going on in the midst of COVID. And then we should be talking about this is who the bill will help. We should be talking about BBB as a step. Mm -hmm. We should be talking about it in concert with the concept of three infrastructures. Infrastructure of our democracy, voting rights and expansion of voting rights infrastructure of our daily lives, health care, education, living wages, and the infrastructure of our roads and bridges and technology. And it should be all considered as one. Mm -hmm. But this place is so full of the, the gamesmanship. And for me and for our movement, the moral crisis is y'all act like 700,000 people didn't just die. You act as though there's not massive pain. And maybe for some people there's not pain because it didn't hit them as hard. But the Democrats, God bless them, you know, you run a campaign, but then you get elected and they run right back to neoliberalism, right back to the kinds of Democrats that were produced during the Reagan years that really think neoliberalism just taking care of the middle class. I mean, you think about how many times in the midst of this debate have you heard people even talk, say, the poor and low wealth or low wage workers. The language is too puny. They allow, what? so you're going to allow somebody to say they are moderate? So what does moderate mean? Moderate means how many people you can cut from health care. That's, that, that's what the moderate means. Evidently, you allow them to get away with it. A moderate means you are a moderate if you can block people from living wages, if you can make sure home health care workers don't make a basic living wage, if you can block people from community care. That's not a moderate, that's mean. That's and just they cost mean. it out over 10 years as opposed to the, the yearly. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and that's the point. That's right. You make it keep saying three trillion, three, four, five, when it's actually 350 billion a year. Compared to what for the military? That right? 750 yeah. billion. Right. And, right. and many billions that they don't even ask for. They just say, here's an extra 10, 15 billion dollars. Right, which, right. That's right. why there's such a, a, a crisis of democracy. Thank you very yeah. much. Climate activists also spoke out on Thursday, protesting that Biden's pared down package still retained $15 billion in direct subsidies to fossil fuel companies. And they spoke out just as the CEOs of some of the world's biggest polluting corporations were brought before Congress to testify 
about the direct impact of their companies on the climate crisis. Food and Water Watch Policy Director Midge Jones called the failure to cut fossil fuel subsidies a failure of leadership. The biggest news coming from that hearing was that none of the corporate leaders agreed to take a pledge from Representative Carolyn Maloney of New York that they would stop funding disinformation campaigns about climate change. Those testifying included ExxonMobil CEO Darren Woods, BP America CEO David Lawler, Chevron CEO Michael Wirth, Shell Oil President Gretchen Watkins, and leaders from the industry trade groups, including the American Petroleum Institute, API, President Mike Summers, and U.S. Chamber of Commerce President CEO Suzanne Clark. Maloney announced at the end of the hearing that she would issue subpoenas to ExxonMobil, BP, Chevron, Shell, and API for key documents they have refused to produce regarding the committee's investigation into the fossil fuel industry's climate disinformation campaign. Now, just as climate activists rightly recognize the climate catastrophe as a form of violence, there were warnings this week about direct and tacit support for political violence by members of the Republican Party and other groups on the right. In Kenosha, Wisconsin, Judge Bruce Schroeder made headlines when he ordered that two Black Lives Matter protesters shot and killed by teenager Kyle Rittenhouse last year, as well as a third man Rittenhouse injured, cannot be referred to as victims. But the judge ordered that Rittenhouse's defense attorneys could use the words rioters, looters, or arsonists to refer to the men if his lawyers can provide evidence that the men, Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber, both deceased, or the wounded man, Gage Grosskreutz, engaged in those acts. Here in D.C., Republicans continue to ignore the wave of death threats, intimidation, and violence directed towards school boards and election officials around the country and browbeat Attorney General Merrick Garland for issuing a memorandum earlier this month directing the FBI to work with local officials to protect the public. And of course, the overwhelming majority of Republican lawmakers continue to downplay the violence of the insurrection on January 6th with some members of Congress comparing the rioters to tourists. Even as the House Select Committee on January 6th continues to uncover new facts about planning for that day inside the White House, Fox News host Tucker Carlson is scheduled to debut a documentary calling January 6th a false flag operation designed to ensnare the right. In Black Lives Matter news, the mother of Tamir Rice returned to D.C. this week to continue to press the Biden administration for justice for her son. Lydia Curtis was on hand. Samaria Rice, the mother of Tamir Rice, who was killed by Cleveland police almost seven years ago, came to Washington to urge the Department of Justice to reopen his case and spoke at a gathering of about 100 supporters in front of the White House on Monday, October 24th. My son was 12 years old playing with a toy gun in the park in an open carry state. He had every right to do that. The policies and the procedures was broken that day. And we already know that police are uneducated and undertrained. We understand that, we see that. So Tamir definitely deserves justice. So do a lot of other people. 
But for my 12-year-old son, I am advocating and I'm always his voice for justice at the end of the day. So I'm hoping the Biden administration will hear me and understand that they need to do right in this situation and open up Tamir's case. Thank you. Congressman Jamal Bowman, a Democrat from New York, has been working with the Rice family. So we're going to fight for accountability. We wrote a letter to the Department of Justice in April demanding they reopen Tamir's case. And we have still not heard from the Department of Justice. But we're not going to stop there. We're going to continue in a relentless, urgent pursuit of justice. And Ms. Rice, if you allow me to, I will continue to work with you and the coalition that you have supporting you. He also explained that the power of the people is needed to overcome the influence of the Fraternal Order of Police over Congress. Sean Blackman of the Party for Socialism and Liberation provided some context for racist police terror. In the same way that children were not exempt from the horrors of slavery, from the horrors of peonage, from the horrors of sharecropping, from the horrors of Jim Crow, neither are they exempt from the ravages of racist police terror. The same pressure from the movement in the streets that brought justice for George Floyd must continue in order to get justice for Tamir and other victims, Blackman concludes. For On the Ground, this is Lydia Curtis. Police killings figured prominently in the hearing held this week by the International Tribunal on U.S. Human Rights Abuses against Black, Brown, and Indigenous peoples. The independent non-governmental body met October 22nd through the 26th in New York City and found the U.S. government guilty of genocide and gross human rights violations. The panel heard from more than 30 witnesses and received hundreds of documents about police murders, mass incarceration, political prisoners, prisoners of war, environmental racism, and public health inequities. More about the panel and their executive summary is at tribunal2021.com. And finally, in culture and media, Thomas O'Rourke has an update about the imprisoned founder of WikiLeaks. Julian Assange's U.S. extradition process continued for a two-day hearing in London this week. On Wednesday, the U.S. argued that Assange is not a suicide risk if extradited to the U.S. and is instead a malingerer. U.S. lawyers also proffered a new, yet legally meaningless and unenforceable assurance that Assange's mental and physical health would be safeguarded in prison, even saying that Assange could serve his sentence in an Australian prison closer to home. Assange's legal team pointed out that none of these promises could be relied upon, that they came much too late in the process, and indeed indicated the desperation of the U.S.'s case. The desperation and determination to win at any cost is evidenced by the explosive Yahoo News revelations in late September, detailing and confirming earlier reports of CIA efforts to plan options and scenarios to kidnap, render, and even assassinate Assange. This intelligence campaign ultimately resulted in Trump administration's steps to pressure Ecuador to give up Assange to arrest by British police. 
Assange's lawyers, while arguing the narrow grounds cited by the court in refusing extradition last January, also strenuously pointed to the evidence of a high-level conspiracy by U.S. officials and its abettors to refute the court's finding that Assange's case is not political, that he is a journalist of the highest caliber, and that furtherance of this prosecution is a gross and grotesque miscarriage of justice and violates all the norms of international extradition. For On the Ground, this is Thomas O'Rourke. And finally, here in the DMV, a Maryland judge has stopped Montgomery County's Housing Opportunities Commission from selling Westwood Towers in the city of Bethesda, Maryland, finding that parking lots at the towers rest on top of an historic black burial ground known as Moses African Cemetery. Marsha Coleman Adebayo, president of the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition, said that the ruling reinforces that Africans and their descendants have rights to their humanity and dignity. Steve Lieberman, one of the attorneys who argued on behalf of the coalition, called the decision historic, quote, not just for the plaintiffs in this lawsuit, but for all those throughout the United States who have ancestors buried in traditional cemeteries that have since been obliterated, destroyed, paved over, or converted to other uses. Lieberman added that he hopes the Housing Opportunities Commission will abandon its effort to sell the towers. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us. Us being here should give Joe Manchin a way out of the corner he's painted himself into. All he has to do is say, I heard my people talking, and I did what they wanted. So if he runs again, I mean, if you're a politician, how could that not be the right thing to do? And he's not doing it. There's self-interest. There's other hidden interests. Something has to be happening for him to ignore the will of 80-some percent of the people of West Virginia to do what he thinks is best. It's arrogance for him to say, no, there's 98 other senators that all believe in this, but I'm smarter than them. I know more than them. I'm sorry, what's your name, sir? My name's Matt Turner. Oh, with the Poor poor People's Campaign. Yes, I'm with the West Virginia Poor People's Campaign. Okay, thank you. 
Okay. I just got a little bit of what you were saying. Um, so can I, I'm here from Pacifica Radio. Can I get your name and why you came out today? To get the I'm Colleen with a C, Wessel McCoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm here to try to speak to Senator Cinema. I'm from Arizona. I live in Phoenix. I'm here um, with my uh, friend Joan. And we uh, we just wanted to talk to her about the, her lack of support for the full Build, build Back Better plan and the, the harm that, that it will come to, to me, to my neighbors, to my fellow Arizonians. Now, is there a particular part of the bill that you think is specifically close to your heart? Well, so for me, that you know, making the child tax credits permanent is critical. You know, the, all of that money for me goes to child care. Uh, I got three kids, only two of them are old enough for public school. And then my third really, really needs there to be universal pre-K in place soon. I need her to be get high quality public education and I need that for her now. She's about to turn three. But then when I think about my neighbors, you know, I live in an apartment building and it's like, I think about any of the cuts, there's someone in my building that that is the, the line between, you know, being able to make their rent or not, you know? And different folks are impacted by different programs, but, you know, put together, it's just, it's all essential for, you know, the, the people that are around me and for Arizonians. Okay, thank you. So, Joan Steed. Okay. I'm from Arizona also, and I'm just heartbroken that Cinema and Mansion and the Congress say no public allowed in there. We just wanted to deliver a letter, and in the letter, it's just basically saying what we're out here begging them to do. Just consider another side of this Build Back Better plan. There is hope for America in that plan. And without it, I think we will have no hope. I think the morale of our country is built into that plan. If some part of that goes through, then some part of our country will have faith in democracy. But if the plan goes completely gone, I believe our morale in this country will plummet right with it. So I'm praying that somehow all this hard work will pay off for Americans. Because we're marching for all Americans, not just low-wage workers. If you're rich, you have a low-wage worker in your home. So it should mean something to everyone all across America. So where do you live in Arizona and what, what do you do there? I live in Phoenix and I work in the Phoenix Scottsdale area as a home care worker. Uh, CNA, caregiver. My specialty is hospice. And I take care of people who are dying in their homes or dying in uh, assisted living. Mm -hmm. They get no support, not from their family, not from the government. And I'm the last person they see before they pass away. And I'm fighting for $15 an hour. Mm -hmm. Now, I could go work at Starbucks and make more money. I could go work at, at, at maybe a fast food and make more money. But to care for your mothers and your family that are passing away and I have to fight for $15 an hour minimum wage, it seems terrible to me. I'm hoping this passes so that at least money will go into health care and home care and children will be cared for at preschool. My children went to preschool. I thought it was a right of all Americans, but it's not. Right, right. And, right. and same thing with health care. If you're wealthy, you go to Cancer Institute. If you're poor, you die in your home. And that's sad to me. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Rabbi Jonah Pesner, the director of the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism. 
the largest and most diverse denomination in Jewish life, and the proud partner of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. Bishop Barber, you told us we are having a crisis in democracy. This crisis in democracy, we saw it coming five years ago. They walked in Charlottesville. They carried teaching torches. They had assault rifles, and they said, what? Jews will not replace us. And they had their guns and their Confederate flags. And it was the face, the ugly, bigoted face of white supremacy and racism and anti-Jewish hate. And my friends, my family, my poor people campaign family, three years ago today, today, a white supremacist bigot marched into the Tree of Life building, housing three synagogues with an assault rifle and murdered 11 of our Jewish family. And why? Because they were a congregation, Dor Hadash, that had observed refugee Shabbat, where they were welcoming immigrants, migrants, the refugees, and all those seeking to shelter under God's presence. We in the Jewish tradition shared with our Muslim family and our Christian family say that to be a person of faith is to be for the widow, the poor, and the orphan. We are taught in the Bible that we are to speak up, to do justice, and stand with the poor. So on this, the third anniversary of the massacre in Tree of Life, which was a warning about what the ugly, violent face of white supremacy looks like, and played out on January 6th in that building, when they invited whose house? Our house! Attacked who? Attacked us! Our democracy, imperfect as it is, struggling as it might, but a democracy that looks like what you have built, Bishop Barber. Look around and see the good news. We are black and white, Latino, brown. We are native peoples. We are Muslim and Christian and Jew and Baha'i and Hindu and too many faiths that I can list. We are all genders. We are non-binary. We are LGBTQIA. We are the full array of what God bent the world to look like. Buenos dias. Good morning. My name is uh, Julia Paramo. I'm 24, Tejana from Dallas, Texas. And me and my friends have been hunger striking for eight days now. This morning, the doctors were concerned with how much weight I've lost since we began this. And I want to tell President Joe Biden that I'm tired of seeing community struggle every day, like my one back in Dallas. President Biden, I am tired of communities having to go through natural disasters like the one I went through back in February. Mm -hmm. I still remember the winter freeze like it was yesterday. Joe Biden, I don't want to wake up in a freezing cold room worried about my parents, about my dog, about my friends only a few miles away, scrambling to use the devices I had that still had power to contact and to find resources and aid to help my community because the government wasn't there, because the infrastructure that should have been in place wasn't there. I don't want another child or family to die of carbon monoxide poisoning because the infrastructure that could have prevented that from happening 
wasn't in place, we don't need any more fossil fuel projects. We need Joe Biden and his administration to forget about the corporations and save our lives. That's it. Save all of our lives. Yes, that's right. That's right. Amen. Somebody say forward together. Forward together. Not one step back. Not one step back. Say everybody. Everybody has a right to live. Has a right to live. You just heard the sounds and voices of those who joined the Reverend William Barber and the Poor People's Campaign rallying in front of the Supreme Court Wednesday, October 27, 2021. The action was titled Moral Witness Wednesday, Economic Investment for the People, Not Corporations and the Greedy. The protest was to support the Build Back Better Act, which invests in climate, education, child and elder care, health care, and other benefits for working families in the United States. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. I'm inspired by the strength of the people From the streets to the steeple We all equal inspiration Lo que me inspira es el poder de la gente Lo que usan su mente para revolución I'm inspired by the strength of the people From the streets to the steeple We all equal inspiration Lo que me inspira es el poder de la gente Lo que usan su mente para liberación Ayo, ayo My heroes are young lords adored And ready to go to war In a society with racial anxiety Singing the blues of various hues and colors On the streets People were killing each other so they on the coalition of brothers and sisters on a revolutionary mission. Now listen, they won't open with no crooked ass politicians. They made their own decisions based solely on their proposition. They had a 13-point program and platform. They knew that organizing was an art form that they could transform from college students and dorms into a militant organization with uniforms. The newspapers read, Liberación Aguante. Liberty of death to their last breath. Fighting for those that have less. Although we mad stress, we still blessed. Still stay blessed. I'm inspired by the strength of the people From the streets to the steeple We all equal inspiration Lo que me inspira es el poder de la gente Lo que usan su mente para revolución This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital I'm Esther Averam here with this month's Expanded Exploration of Media and Culture And I'm joined by our media critic John Jeter former Foreign Bureau Chief for the Washington Post, two-time Pulitzer finalist and author of two books, including Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleece Working People. He joins us from Limon, Costa Rica. Welcome back to the show, John. Thank you for having me again, Esther. Well, there's really so much to cover in culture and media this week, but I think that I've kind of narrowed it down to about five topics. The first one is Julian Assange was back in court this week, Wednesday and Thursday, October 27th, October 28th. And this is a new extradition hearing. The United States is still trying to extradite the founder and editor of WikiLeaks for revealing U.S. war crimes in Iraq more than a decade ago. Yeah, I, I just find it so ironic that the United States continues to hound Julian Assange, who I consider or certainly one of the best journalists in the English language, and that they are after him again to extradite him. And at the same time, you know, we feed 
the war criminal, the late war criminal Colin Powell, for committing those war crimes, or at least committing his share of war crimes. It's just uh, another sort of window into America's culture of make-believe. It's farcical on many levels, but just really dangerous, too. So, Oh, yeah. It's, um, it's creeping fascism. It really is. It's this idea that free speech is a danger to the state. And I'm just shocked. I guess I'm not shocked. I'm disappointed, even with my low expectations of the media, that the mainstream media is not covering this. I don't want to. This is very important, especially for journalists, right? I mean, what Julian Assange did is what journalists do every day. I want to pick up on something you just said in terms of fascism. Because when I look at some of the things happening in this country, it's a continued assault on the truth, basically. Yes, exactly. You know? exactly. And, and so when we look at Julian Assange, that's the case. It's an assault on the truth. Nothing that WikiLeaks has ever published has been false. Right. You know? Exactly. So whether they want to talk about the war crimes exposed, whether it's Hillary Clinton's emails or John Podesta's emails during the uh, 2016 election, none of those things are false, right? So here in this country, there are a few things happening that really concern me greatly. And just this week, this judge in the murder trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who murdered two Black Lives Matter protesters last year and wounded a third, that according to the judge, the people killed or wounded cannot be referred to as victims in the court. It's just extraordinary. The defense, if they can prove it, these people, two dead men, one wounded, can be referred to as rioters, arsonists, or looters. So they can't be called victims because that will be prejudicial, he says. <laughs> but it's not prejudicial to call them looters. or looters, right, right. Or arsonists. <laughs> so what, what we have here is a real battle over not just truth, but language yes. and how people are going to be defined. Right. And right. so also this month, I want to point out a few cases to you. So... Down in South Lake, Texas, there was a controversy when a tape was leaked to NBC News that uh, featured a conversation between a school administrator and in a training with teachers. And basically, this trainer was just telling the teachers that they had to be very careful to meet the standards of this new law in Texas that forbids the teaching of race. And so, obviously, it's to limit the teaching about racism in American history. And an outgrowth of this is that the school administrator is telling these teachers, if they have a text talking about the Holocaust, for example, they need another, some other information giving an opposing side of the Holocaust. Right. I'm going to play a little clip of that, and then I'll get your response. Okay. As you go through, just try to remember the concepts of 3979 and make sure that if you have a book on the Holocaust, that you have one that has opposing, that has other books. How do you oppose the Holocaust? What? Believe me, that's come up. Okay, so at the end, the administrator is saying, you know, just remember if you have a book on the Holocaust, remember, make sure you have an opposing view. Right. And then the teachers say incredulously, 
what how do you oppose the holocaust right. and she said believe me that's come up right so that's already come up in meetings so <laughs> this whole push in this country against so-called critical race theory which is really a push by and I don't even want to call them all parents because they're not all parents who object to the teaching of the true history of American slavery and genocide in this country. They don't want that taught. They don't want their children possibly made to feel bad about being white, you know? <laughs> and then similarly, just this week, it came out that the candidate for governor in Virginia is running a new ad featuring a parent who wanted to have new standards for what children could read in school. Her son was a senior in high school, and I guess a few years ago when McAuliffe was still governor, she was not successful in getting a law passed that would create these new guidelines, and McAuliffe vetoed it, saying that you know it would create censorship. But anyway, we found out after this new ad started running that what she wanted to do was ban the teaching of beloved right. Toni Morrison's right. book, African-American oh, novelist. And it, she, she's Toni Morrison. So you, we can just say that. She's Toni Morrison. <laughs> right. Yes. The late great Toni Morrison. And so this has created a whole new perspective on this banning of books or this attempted banning of books. So between Texas and Virginia here, you know, how do you see this from, from far away? Oh, boy. I really think it's a sign. I, I, I don't mean to be alarmist, but I think this is a sign of the apocalypse. I really do. And, and what I mean by that is there's this social meltdown, which I believe is imminent. And the reason is because we sort of retreat deeper and deeper into this pit of lies. I mean, when we talk about racism, right, we talk about the history of racism. We're not talking something about something that's about something that's peripheral to the republic. We're talking about when, uh, from what I'm told, all the Abrahamic religions recognize three crimes against humanity. They are slavery, genocide, and rape. The United States was built on all three, right? These are organizing principles, principles around which the United States is organized. So to deny them, not to teach them, to ignore them, right, is mm -hmm. to ignore who we really are. And let me just say this very quickly, Esther. I, you know, I'm a black man. And so I contemplate racism, the racism that's done to me that oppresses me and my community every day. But as a man, right, as a man who has to deal with racism and think about racism and understand its roots, you inevitably come against misogyny, patriarchy. This is the United States is a rape culture. I, I'm not Harvey Weinstein. I don't think I you know, harass women or, or, or do anything like that. But I have to deal with my role in a patriarchal society. Does that make me feel bad? Sometimes it does, right? I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not perfect. I've done things I shouldn't have. I'm not the most culpable person in this rape culture. But, you know, feeling bad is not really dispositive for why we should discuss these things. These are things that are urgent to our humanity. So, it's just utterly ridiculous that we can't talk about these things, that there is a section of the country, there, there are uh, factions of the country that don't want us to discuss the principles around which this country was organized. Well, it even comes up to the present because the backdrop behind these two episodes of censorship or attempted censorship that I talked about is that all across the country, there are groups of the far right showing up at school boards and 
even some elected officials here in Washington, D.C. are chiming in. Basically, some there have been cases of violence, intimidation, death threats against people on school boards about these issues, about what is taught in schools, whether children should wear masks, a piece of cloth in front of their face for public safety. The first incident that went viral back in August showed these men uh, following like a administrator or a medical professional to his car in Tennessee saying, you know, we know who you are. We know where you live. (laughs) And a school board member down in Brevard County has had her home outside of her home vandalized. There were people patrolling near her church with guns. Uh, They, someone made a fake report of that she was abusing her child. She was visited by the child and family services Mm -hmm. in Florida. A state official published her phone number, her private phone number on Facebook. And so, you know, receiving all kinds of calls and texts and threats. So this is really going way beyond the pale. And then you have these things happening. And then when Merrick Garland, the attorney general, tried to respond to these incidents and this growing danger. And he was responding to a plea from school administrators to get, you know, get involved and protect people. He's been attacked now when he testified before Congress last week, all they talked about was, you know, why are you calling parents domestic terrorists? Right. 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 Because they are. um, (laughs) Right. So, so they want to ignore the violence that's going around. And to me, it's definitely connected to January 6th. There are people in Congress here who want to ignore the violence that happened on January 6th. They say, oh, it didn't happen. These people were tourists, right? Right. So if you have people denying American history, then you have people, they're witnessing violence. In some cases, they're perpetrating the violence. Then they want to ignore it or say it didn't happen. This is extremely dangerous. It's extreme gaslighting. And so that's the other shoe to drop in terms of this, this whole period we're in where we can't acknowledge history we can't acknowledge the present. And I don't know where you go for the f- to the future. I mean, how do you go? Where do you go to in the future from that? You, you, can't, you can't acknowledge the past. We're stuck. You can't acknowledge yeah, the present. We're stuck. We're stuck. At, and, and people need to understand and this is not, you know, this is not black racism against white people. But historically speaking, the white settler has responded to economic crises, economic crises that threaten their privileges, their privileges in society as white people, as white workers, they respond typically with mob violence, right? That's what apartheid was about in South Africa. 1948, the blacks come, start to take these jobs in the factories, come from the countryside to the factories in the cities while the whites are are at war. And apartheid was passed to strengthen a white identity. That's what January 6th was about. We have plenty of social scientists who say that, right? And so, again, we can't talk about these things, so we're stuck. We can't move forward. But that's something we're going to have to deal with is this idea. Even, you know, you can even take this to Nazi Germany, right? You know, they had this huge inflation crisis, and they identified the Jews in Germany as non-white. Hitler said they were non-white. They were non-Aryan, right? So, we can't move past this because we can't discuss it. They shut down any conversation about it. So we're in a bad place. You know, I don't think most people realize because the the superstructures in place, 
at the academy, in our public schools, in our the media, the news and entertainment media, all of it is oriented around, as Antonio Gramsci told us, is oriented around perpetuating, reproducing inequality, reproducing these cultural narratives that that makes racism and sexism seem like common sense. It's not. It's it's lunacy. It's absolute lunacy. And you know, before I move on from this. I don't want to let the Democrats off the hook because we're talking about basically what the right and the far right are doing. I maintain that a lot of the the seeds for this kind of distrust of the media, distrust of institutions was born certainly during the the presidency of Donald Trump when the whole Russiagate hoax was perpetrated. So, So on the other hand, Yes, you have the far right and the right doing this, but at the same time, you have the Democrats, for example, portions of the corporate media that are Democrat-leaning, totally ignoring a new book that basically proves the authenticity of the Hunter Biden laptop and email scandal. I don't know if you remember that. Yes, I do. But what happened is right before this past election, the 2020 presidential election, Uh, Steve Bannon and Giuliani and the fact that they were involved in it made it seem really grimy. Right. So people wanted to ignore it. I give it that. Right. Right. But they somehow got this laptop to the New York Post that had all these email on it that had pretty kind of sketchy stuff about not only Hunter Biden, but his father, the presidential candidate. right? Right. And so this new book, it's called The Biden's Inside the First Family's 50 Year Rise to Power by political reporter Ben Schreckinger authenticates uh, multiple emails from the laptop and as part of this deep look into the Biden family, right? Right. Uh, And I want to credit Aaron Maté at the Gray Zone, his interview with this author that I listened to that kind of like gave me more insight into the Mm -hmm, book. mm -hmm. And so that's one thing that's being ignored by the corporate media, right? They listen to people like, uh, who's the guy, the CIA head who lied to Congress? Clapper. And so he was saying, oh, this is uh, this carries all the marks of Russian information. Right? <laughs> and and so they went with that. They ignored it. Not only that, did that did that happen? But social media giants like Twitter, Facebook, they basically forbid the story to be circulated on social media right. just before the election. Right. So and I guess this is also what led Glenn Greenwald to leave The Intercept. The fact that they wouldn't let him publish his stories about it. Right. So then you have this real clampdown by corporate media and corporate social media giants against the story. So anyway, that's that's something in the and, Dem- Democrats corner. And, okay? may I, and may I say and people are surprised that or at least the establishment is surprised that people are reluctant to take a vaccine, right? Like people don't trust the state. They don't trust the media. I, you know, I'm, exactly. va- I'm vaccinated. Exactly. I'm vaccinated. You know, I, I wasn't, I was reluctant to get it, but I, I ultimately got it. But I certainly understand why people will be reluctant to take a vaccine that the state says you should have, right? Nobody trusts the right. state. That's a very dangerous right. place. And, and this is why reasons like this, you know, uh, the Russiagate thing. Let me get this one other piece in. Okay. Okay. And then since we talked last, I think when we spoke last, John Durham, the uh, special prosecutor who's still looking into all this uh, Russiagate, uh, he's still at the Department of Justice and he's still looking into all these Russiagate allegations. At the point that we talked last, uh, he had already indicted 
a Hillary Clinton's campaign lawyer, uh, Michael Sussman. And, and this was for, um, lying to the FBI in connection to that, um, whole Russiagate, uh, hoax. Right. Mm -hmm. But since then there are two more, uh, developments. The, he's gotten a guilty plea from former FBI lawyer, Kevin Kleinsmith, who admitted to altering an email about a Trump campaign aide under government surveillance. And then last month, oh, okay. So I already said Sussman. Okay. All right. So anyway, so there's been a few more, you know, developments right. in that. Okay. All right. So anyway, I wanted to mention those because this hasn't been reported like ad nauseum, like every night right. by like Rachel Maddow. Right. It right. hasn't been, she hasn't, right. you know, how she does her long wind up. And then she finally tells you about 15 minutes into this to show what she's talking about. Right. I haven't heard anything about these things on that. And, you know, she was Miss Russiagate. So anyway, this is, this is an example of how the truth is not being, um, the war on truth on both sides. Yes. You know? Oh yeah. Oh and, yes. It's a, and, it's a, it's a bipartisan affair for sure. But the only thing they don't have a bipartisan, they have agreement on funding for the military industrial complex. They just gave the Pentagon $29 billion more than they even asked for than Biden asked for. And they have a bipartisan on disinformation about China and Russia. So right, right. they, they and, share those. And, and, steal, share those. and stealing money, uh, printing money for the corporations, right? Uh, and, and, and stealing money from the working class. The, those things that both parties are agreed on. There's this war on truth and it's coming from the left and the right. But I guess the most, the more fascist element seems to be coming from the right. But that's, you know, that's, that's hard to argue because yeah. yeah, that, that, that's hard to argue. But, but anyway, I, we can't get out of this week's, dis this month's discussion without talking about Dave Chappelle, the closer. And uh, I had a chance to see the special, even after hearing so much about it in terms of attacking it for being homophobic, mm -hmm. transphobic. But I also saw that you, you wrote about it on Facebook and you had a very long thread with a lot of people commenting. So why don't you first tell us about Dave Chappelle, the closer. And I have to apologize to listeners for not having a, a member of the LGBTQ community in this segment. But John and I are African-American. We're black African people. Right. So we have something to say about it from the position of race anyway. Yeah, so my piece began by talking about Richard Pryor's sort of infamous monologue in 1977 at the Hollywood Bowl for a LGBT fundraiser. And he was angered by some of the things he saw backstage, the stage managers being very rude to some of the other Black performers who went on before Richard Pryor, who was the, the headliner. And so he's fuming about the racism he saw from the gay community against some Blacks. And so while he's on stage, and I think it's safe to assume it was Richard Pryor, so he was probably drunk or high, which was his his way, part of his genius, I guess. And so he lights into the LGBT community. It wasn't an ad hominem attack, even though it was vicious. It was about their retreat from, and you have to understand, Richard Pryor was born in 1940. So he was part of what was an interracial movement 
tentative, but but a real interracial movement that built uh, coming out of the New Deal that built the American middle class, right? And so what he saw was the gay community retreating from their class alliance with blacks, right? I wrote that I think the Dave Chappelle skit, and I don't think Dave Chappelle, just my impression, I've never met the man, I don't think he's probably as lucid on issues of class as was Richard Pryor. But I believe, after watching his skit and watching him several times comment on these issues as it pertains to the white feminist movement, the white LGBT movement, that this was his critique of class solidarity by whites. He says specifically, I don't have a problem with the LGBT community. I have a problem with whites. And so this to me was a monologue about when oppressed people are also the oppressors because they identify as what? As white, right? And that was the the nature of both, I thought, Chappelle's monologue, Richard Pryor's monologue uh, in 1977. And I think it's a valid point. I don't think many people, black or white, would disagree with the notion that the LGBT community faces many, many challenges. But I also don't think many people can in any honest way, disagree with the fact that the LGBT community identifies with their class rather than their race. Well, John, we've run out of time for this part, one of our conversation, and we'll have to do part two and post it on our Patreon accounts, uh, patreon.com forward slash on the ground show and patreon.com forward slash John Jeter. And folks can check it out there. Uh, But thank you for joining me today and stick around. We'll finish our conversation. Thank you, John. Thank you, Esther. And that's it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. Special thanks to Lydia Curtis, Thomas O'Rourke, and John Jeter for their contributions to today's show. You can check out all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us and support us there as well. You can also like the show at On The Ground Show on Facebook and Twitter. And thank you to all of our supporters on patreon.com at On The Ground Show. Our podcast is On The Ground with Esther Averam, and that's on all your podcast platforms. Our official podcast, our social media pages, and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On The Ground. The music we played this hour included Is There Anybody Out There by Hugh Masakila, Inspiracion by Maluk, Street Fighter Moss by Kamasi Washington, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I also want to say that the last voice in the montage of voices from the Poor People's Campaign Action was Julia Paramo. She was with the Sunrise Movement participating in the hunger strike outside the White House for more than the past week. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. 
So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end of the year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.